What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and noted short seller Carson Block just revealed his latest short position on stage at the Sone Conference in London today. The name? Blackstone Mortgage Trust. The shares are down about 4% right now. The stock had a 3% gain for the year before the news hit. It's now turned negative. Uh, and Block is warning shareholders, here comes the cliff. Carson Block himself joins us now fresh off the stage in a CNBC exclusive to explain and to make his case. Uh, Carson, thanks for joining us and welcome. Thanks for having me. So let me just start with the fact that a lot of people will will hear the name Blackstone and maybe be reminded of some problems with uh, BREIT a year ago. Uh, Explain a little bit about your short against Blackstone mortgage and any similarities or differences uh, that it may have to that experience, uh, you know, that maybe first told us that there could be brewing problems with uh, the real estate sector. Sure. Well, Blackstone Mortgage Trust is separate from the BREIT, but basically Blackstone Mortgage Trust, they lend money to uh, commercial real estate owners and developers. So some portion, a reasonably significant portion of Blackstone's book is office, but there are other areas of the book as well. Now, it's pretty well known that office is facing a lot of headwinds, and this is really the perfect storm for office landlords. But for commercial real estate in general, because as interest rates have gone up, the values of the, of the real estate have gone down. But here's what we see is going to happen to Blackstone. And we don't think that there's really any way they can maneuver out of this. We think starting next year, their businesses and their cash flow is going to be under significant strain because we we extrapolate that about 70 to 75 percent of their U.S. borrowers are unable to cover interest expense without interest rate swaps that they put in place several years ago. Now, Blackstone's total loan book is about $23 billion. And we estimate that next year, swaps on $16 billion of that book are going to come off and basically expose these borrowers to having to pay market rates. And when we've looked, so the way that we analyze this we looked at these CLOs. These are these debts, uh, these, these debt securities that Blackstone mm-hmm. has sponsored. And the loans that are in the CLOs, we understand are representative of Blackstone's larger U.S. balance sheet. And when we're looking at these CLOs and looking in detail at the data, we see that 70 plus percent of these borrowers, so about actually north of 25 percent of these borrowers can't even cover what's called SOFR, which is the base rate. Right. And then another almost half of the borrowers can cover the base rate, but can't cover that spread that's on top. Now, the big problem then becomes, eventually, these are interest-only loans. So eventually, they have to refinance these loans. But the collateral values, the values of the assets, look to be significantly underwater. So for the group that can actually cover the base rate, but not the interest, 
we th it looks to us like most of those assets are underwater, basically below the loan values by about 20%. And then when you look at the group that can't even cover the base rate, that's about a 50% haircut from the market data sources that we're using. Hmm. So it's not like they can end up getting out of these loans by paying them off. So we think that what's going ha to happen is Blackstone's basically going to have to modify these loans and allow them to make you know, pick interest payments. It's payable in kind. Right. So non-cash interest. And because of the huge amount of swaps, again, 16 billion that terminate next year, we think that that's when it's going to show up. Because Blackstone's been doing that a little bit. We understand that about four to five percent of its, of its interest income right now is pick and that it's already extended about six percent of the loans on its balance sheet. But I mean, with over 50 percent of the, well over 50 percent of the balance sheet, the protective swaps terminating next year, they're going to have to start facing the music. And so we think significant dividend cuts coming back half of next year. Right. And we also think they could find themselves in a liquidity crisis as well. And that's probably the most impactful to investors. This is a dividend play after all. So you're warning that that's at risk at the back half of next year. You mentioned um, there is a way out potentially, and people might wonder why have the shares held up. You say, you know, if the, if the sort of overnight rate hits three and a half percent at the end of next year without the economy slowing, you know, then they could kind of avoid these bigger problems that you're talking about. And there are some well-respected economists like, you know, Jan Hatzius or Dean Mackey who say, yeah, that's basically a, a feasible outcome that we could actually thread that needle. By the way, I also just want to mention we've heard from the company. Uh, Blackstone Mortgage Trust says we believe this self-interested and misleading report is designed solely for the purpose of negatively impacting our share price for the short seller's own benefit. We will respond in greater detail, but the steps we've taken on both sides of our balance sheet leave us well positioned to navigate this environment. As evidenced in our third quarter results, uh, they mentioned their uh, dividend coverage ratio, 126%, record liquidity, and a continued reduction in their leverage. That's actually a very, very interesting point that you bring up because as far as they actually, in their most recent uh, quarterly presentation, they telegraph for the first time they're concerned about their dividend. So in that presentation on a slide that talks about that 126% dividend coverage, for the first time, there's a little footnote in the bottom, and it reads that only 27% of that income is covered by gap income. So this is so that that looks like classic CYA. Uh oh, you know we need to prepare for this to hopefully mitigate the lawsuits. So it's interesting they they bring that up, but um, I mean, look, I don't think that these are like horrible people here, but they're self-interested as well, and what that's led them to do is. That's led them to gloss over these problems, including by understating the risk in the loans. And, you know, our, the report that we've published, you know, I think we make a compelling case, if you look at it, that, yeah, there's, they've been absolutely under downplaying the risk and the problems that exist in the loan book right now. And, look, they have to do it because if Blackstone's lenders say we're concerned and the collateral values have fallen below 80%, of the loan values, then Blackstone's own lenders can say to Blackstone, we're basically going to call this loan or you have to post more collateral. Hmm. So that's how Blackstone finds itself in a liquidity crisis is when its lenders say, yeah, we want more cash. Yeah. And at the same time, Blackstone also has $2.7 billion of unfunded loan commitments that it's made and only $1.5 billion of available borrowing capacity. And so when you look at the cash that they're going to receive is going to be sharply curtailed. 
their lenders are probably going to want more money, and they have a bunch of borrowers to whom they've made loan commitments that they're probably going to have to fund, that's where you get the liquidity crisis. And, and obviously you've been saying Blackstone is a shorthand for BXMT, but is there any case in which this trickles back up to be a, a problem at, at BX itself, Blackstone itself? I mean, that's that's beyond the scope of what we looked at. Um, so now we've, we've just let, focused let me on ask BXMT. You then, so for the these mortgage types, uh, mortgage, whatever exact language you want to use for this product, my understanding is a couple similarly positioned companies might be Starwood Property Trust, Ladder Capital. I don't know if you took a look at those, but can you speak to whether, given the concerns you're describing are pretty broad and would affect, obviously, banks and a whole host of other players in the CMBS space, are there other... Um, kind of stocks similar to BXMT that could also face and run into these same issues? Would Starwood and Ladder be among them? So, yes, as a general matter, I'll, I'll speak to that. So over the next two years, 24 and 25, there's $1.2 trillion of commercial real estate debt for U.S. commercial real estate alone that's coming due. So you're going to have a real scramble for cash. Now, when we're, when we're talking about a moment ago, Blackstone and downplaying the risk, see, this is one of the things with this group of mortgage REIT sponsors, they're all playing the same game of like, well, you know, nobody else has basically marked down a significant number of their loans. So if, you know, Apollo's not doing it, then, you know, we're not going to do it. So they can all collectively live in this plausible deniability bubble, uh, basically about the, you know, about the risks in their loan books until these loans hit some sort of final maturity and they have to start recognize they have to start actually provisioning for these losses because they're not going to provision for these losses until it's too late. It's kind of like the ratings agencies will, you know, they'll tell you that there's a problem, you know, well after everybody's lost money. So think that that's collectively what this group of companies do because there's no incentive to be out there in front marking these, you know, taking right. provisioning these loans for these significant losses that are coming their way. The shares are trading around $21 today. Do you have a price target or, or an exit price? At this point, look, there's, there's some portion of this that depends on rates. I mean, we think that ultimately the losses that Blackstone, that BXMT is going to incur are probably two and a half on the low end, two and a half billion to four and a half billion on the high end. So relative to the $4 billion market cap, I mean, that could basically eclipse the present value of the market cap. Some portion does depend on rates, but, you know, I'm, like it, it's just there's really no way out of this um, that, that they have. They can just try to mitigate the pain some, but at the end of the day, um, you know, the cash won't be there and the dividend's going to be cut maybe, and the losses will ultimately be incurred. And maybe the flip side way for me to ask you that question is what would the shares have to hit for you to abandon the short and say you know, maybe it was a soft landing or, or maybe they figured something out? Would it be 25, 30, you know, well above that? Well, I think about it more in terms of the timing. So, you know, through the first half of next year, they might be able to pretend this isn't going to happen. But a year from now, I don't think they're going to be able to pretend anymore. So, you know, depending on if the market starts looking at this and the shares start pricing this in, then, you know, then maybe we look at it and like, okay, you know, do we want to lighten the position or what do we do? But if it hasn't really, I mean, this is one where, like I said, it's the reason I use this analogy, you know, the title of it is off the cliff. 
And we have Wiley Coyote, you know, in that famous pose, having just stepped off the cliff and realized there's no ground underneath them, is because we think that's how it's going to go for their business. It'll be all of a sudden. So if the market doesn't price start pricing that in sooner, you know, I mean, I'm cool being short going into the second half of next year, mm-hmm. absent, like, you know, like you said, so for going down to three and a half percent with absolutely, you know, no diminution in the economic environment. Right. And I want to I want to point that out. We'll you know, we might get rate cuts, but the rate cuts usually happen because of economic weakness. Commercial landlords are heavily exposed to economic weakness. So just because rates might be, you know, might get cut doesn't mean like, oh, that's great news. It probably means, you know, almost certainly will mean that the income that their borrowers are receiving is also dropping. Right. Carson, I want to ask you about the fact that this is a difficult environment to be a short seller. It has been for a decade, maybe especially so now. And the fact that Jim Chanos is closing his funds and you know turning the capital and just kind of citing the difficulty of doing so really highlights that, I think. Um, would you say that that I even heard that it's cheaper than ever to short stocks because so few people are really interested in doing it? And I'm curious what your experience has been like as one of the most high profile short sellers out there. Well, it, it obviously has been tough to, you know, fight against the beta that we've experienced since the financial crisis. Um, I mean, Jim's model is somewhat different from ours because we really only focus on these activist names that we talk about. I think it is, you know, it has been very tough to take short positions and just sit there and wait for, you know, I mean, what the shorts have gotten wrong since the financial crisis is really the timing because debt was so cheap that companies were able to extend the runways forever and especially short sellers who came up before the financial crisis you know they were they always were used to seeing their theses materialize within you know one or two quarters but i mean companies strung these things out for years we're not in that environment anymore so you know i'm i, I don't know jim's reasoning i'm you know possibly some of it's personal i'm speculating there but um i do think that this is actually a pretty interesting time to be you know, to have that kind of strategy that that Jim has run all these years where sure. it's a non-activist strategy. So I don't know. I mean, high rates will make companies more honest. It'll bring the really bad companies back to back to earth. So if the central banks don't lose the page again and, you know, send us all into, you know, emergency monetary policy land, I think that people like Jim could actually do pretty well. Quick final question. Uh, a couple of the stocks you've had short positions on in the past, especially in the kind of clean energy space, for lack of a better term, Sunrun down 40 percent this year, Hannon Armstrong or Hassey down about 12 percent. Are those still short positions that you have or are there, you know, any kind of comment you'd add about um, some of those companies that had been high flyers, as you mentioned, kind of during the COVID era with uh, super low rates, but now are facing more struggles? Well, we've been pretty active again in Sunrun. Um, spoke about that uh, a few weeks ago at the Robin Hood conference in New York. And, you know, previously our issues were their, their, you know, financial models telling you what their subscribers are worth or, you know, these 30 year models that are just ridiculous. But we actually, you know, we've shown that they are exaggerating the number of subscribers they have. They're actually five quarters ahead of where they really are. And the companies denied this, but they've given conflicting explanations. You know, I'm I'm kind of sitting here. I feel like the cat who swallowed the you know cat swallowed the canary here because I can I can prove that basically these denials are effectively lies. 
and I look forward to doing that. But that might be uh, a 2024 thing also, given that we're we're almost at the holidays here. We will dive into that another time. Carson, for now, thanks for joining us and explaining your new position. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Carson Block with Money Waters. Let's take a broad look at what the markets are doing here. As you heard Scott mention, uh, we've really given up the gains that we saw earlier in the session on the Dow, which is up 15 points at the moment. S&P is now negative by two, NASDAQ by 12, even as bond yields have been falling. And oil is plummeting sharply today with WTI crude dropping below $70, its lowest level since last June. Let's probe it all. We got new data raising hopes that inflation pressures are easing to pave the way for the Fed to start cutting next year. Product Productivity was strong. Third quarter non-farm productivity, 5.2%. That's up half a point from the last estimate, and it's the fastest pace in three years. Meanwhile, the private sector ADP jobs report showed an increase of just 103,000 jobs last month. Let's talk through the implications now with Greg Daco. He's chief economist at EY Parthenon and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Welcome to you both. Steve, I actually just want to kick this off with you because what Carson Block was just saying in terms of his bearishness about the economy, he's kind of implicit in his short position is that he doesn't think there's any way inflation falls to three and a half percent without a significant economic slowdown next year. Yeah, that's not been the right call. One of the extraordinary um, aspects of the decline in inflation that we've had has been amid relatively strong growth. I, I can't say he's wrong that it won't continue, uh, but uh, it has been a feature uh, of the rebound in the supply chains, um, uh, the increasing competition that's been out there, uh, easing of wages. Uh, the data so far has been pretty good for inflation and not too bad for growth. There's an interesting question as to whether or not to follow the ADP number just at 103,000. I think the market might be a little bit surprised if the, uh, w- the, the street consensus, which is closer to 200,000, ends up being right. But, but so far, it has been, he's right over time that that has been the case. But this time looks to be so far, Kelly, a little bit different. And maybe we're able to have stronger or relatively strong growth with, with inflation coming down. Maybe I should restate it, actually, because what he said is he doesn't think the Fed will cut rates. You know, that the overnight uh, Fed funds rate, so far, what is the metric used, it goes to 3.5%. They, they won't really be doing that unless there is a material slowdown. That is, it is a race right now, and I was really interested in that interview. Um, I don't think he's wrong that uh, there are going to be a lot of companies that are going to have a lot of trouble when it comes time to refi. Whether or not that stacks up to a recession is a different question, and can it be isolated to just those particular industries that are having having problems? Um, I think the Fed cutting is going to absolutely happen if inflation continues to fall. And I'm guided by comments by Fed Governor Chris Waller, who just said, hey, of course we're going to do that uh, because we're not going to be tighter than we need to be. Uh, So the Fed will come down if inflation keeps coming down or at least even maintains current levels by this time, say, uh, in the summer or the spring of next year. Greg, what would you add to that? And and what did we learn this morning from the data? Well, I think we are seeing a soft landing in terms of economic data. I think Steve is absolutely on point when it comes to the dynamics that have been very encouraging. We've seen inflation come down quite significantly. We haven't seen the type of economic pain that the Fed itself was warning us about in this environment. Uh, The key question for 24 is really whether the runway is long enough to sustain that soft landing or whether we enter an environment where there is much softer growth. With regards to the Fed, I do think the Fed is going to pivot. It's not going to announce it uh, in, in the, at the December FOMC meeting, but it will likely quickly pivot towards 
how to recalibrate monetary policy for next year. And that recalibration in communications likely to occur in the early part of next year. All right. And then so if we look to the argument, well, hey, fast productivity is, you know, it's the best. If there's one best piece of news ever for the economy, it's always strong productivity. It means you can raise your living standards without being inflationary and all the rest of it. So should we celebrate the third quarter as a sign that for whatever reason, we're at the beginning of another productivity boom a la late 90s, uh, as Greenspan famously recognized at the time? Or is this just a one-off? I think we have to be a little bit careful to put too much emphasis on any quarterly reading in terms of productivity growth. But what I'm encouraged by is the fact that we've seen productivity rise above its 2017 to 2019 trend in level terms. That's very encouraging. We are seeing increased evidence that there may be this pro-cyclical acceleration in productivity growth. It's driven by this desire that companies have to offset higher labor costs, higher input costs that remain a constraint in terms of economic activity. We're hearing that from a lot of our clients in terms of driving that productivity growth forward. And then we have Gen AI. And I think Gen AI, not tomorrow, not next month, but over the coming months, quarters, and years is likely to be another impetus that provides that non-inflationary growth outlook that is very positive for the economy. So this stronger productivity growth may be just what the economy needs right now. Certainly is. We'll leave it there. Go be productive. Uh, Greg Daco and Steve Leeson, we appreciate your time today. Coming up, we typically think oil producers or steel, transports, airlines when it comes to big greenhouse gas emitters. But buildings play a big role, too. Up next, the takeaways from Real Estate Day at the COP28 Climate Summit and what it means for investors. Plus, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon testifying before Congress today, warning of unseen risks and a brewing crisis in the private credit market. Later on, we'll ask a top exec from Moody's what they're seeing in the space which they are now covering. And we just heard from Carson Block on his latest short idea, Blackstone Mortgage Trust. But he also quickly addressed his recent activity in Sunrun, saying the company is exaggerating their subscriber numbers. Those shares are still higher, but pairing gains on his remarks. The exchange is back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. It's Real Estate Day at the UN's COP20. And this is not looking at real estate listings like we all like to do. It's a big uh, comfort topic at the Climate Change Conference in Dubai as companies look for new cost-efficient ways to green their office buildings. Our Diana Olick has the details. Diana. 
Well, Kelly, real estate accounts for 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions. That's construction and operation of all buildings. And here at the COP, the United States joined at least 60 countries backing a pledge to cut cooling-related emissions by 2050. I spoke with the CEO of Johnson Controls talking AI in air conditioning. There's going to be huge demand for HVAC um, as heating and cooling continues to expand across the globe. Our job in Johns Controls is to make sure it's the most efficient equipment. It's got low global warming potential refrigerant, so a lot of innovation around the refrigerant. Um, and then making sure that we're working to deploy the, the, the digital platform so that we can obviously make it most efficient in how we put that equipment into operation. Now, HVAC is one part of the puzzle. Electrification of buildings is another, and that is a key concern for California-based power company Edison International. And for California, we still see a need for fossil fuels in 2045 um, to maintain the most reliable and affordable pathway possible. But again, using negative carbon to take care of the emissions from the remaining fossil. But Doing this in a way that ensures reliability and resiliency is critical, and that's why at least the 2045 is a phase down. Beyond that, probably eventually there's a phase out as technologies mature. And reducing the power consumption of cooling equipment would cut at least 60% off emissions and save trillions of dollars by 2050. That, according to a new UN report released right here at the COP. Kelly? Although, Diana, one of the, the things you emphasize is doing it in a cost-efficient way. If we've heard anything, especially from tech companies, a lot of those typically at the vanguard of big, splashy green projects in the past, they're in t uh, times of, of greater efficiency. And I wonder what that means for who are going to be kind of the next round of people adopting this technology and kind of driving this trend. Yeah, I mean, look, you have a lot of startup companies, you have a lot of new innovation in the area, and it does have to be cost efficient, but that's what they're trying to do with AI, actually, is to lower those costs in order to get to that cleaner, greener form of energy. All right, Diana, thank you. We will check back in soon. Our Diana Olick out in Dubai. Coming up, an inside look at the most expensive listing in Nashville, Tennessee. We are tracking the city's post-pandemic wealth boom and how it's becoming a big player in the luxury space. Just wait to see the rest of this multi-million dollar home. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu with your data bank and market check. Right now, markets are just about mixed in early tra or midday trading. The S&P 500 at 45.66, just about flat on the session. At the highs of the session, we were actually up about 23 points, down eight points at the low. So keep an eye on that particular move. The Dow Industrials up one-tenth of one percent, 36,172. The Nasdaq Composite 
down one-tenth of one percent, 14,215. Big story today, oil prices now continuing to move lower. You can see U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate below $70 a barrel right now, $69.62, down about three and three-quarters percent. Now firmly below that 200-day moving average or longer-term trend line, so keep an eye on crude prices. Meanwhile, some consumer and spending-type names to focus on from the stock side of things. Campbell Soup out with their earnings report earlier today, a little bit of optimism about a good start for their holiday shopping season and the holiday dining season. Campbell Soup up 7%. Chipotle Mexican down right now, but at one point hit a record high today. It gets a yellow star. DR Horton, Lennar, Pulte Group among the home builders that all hit record highs in trading today. So they all get gold stars. So keep an eye on those home builders. And then, of course, our check on Apple because it is the biggest stock out there. It's been moving kind of lower today, down about one quarter of one percent, but still hovering right around that three trillion dollar market cap amount. So keep an eye on Apple shares, one hundred ninety two dollars and eighty five cents. Kelly. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Dom Chu, let's get to Kate Rooney now for a CNBC News update. Kate? Hi, Kelly. President Biden today called on Congress to approve a new multi-billion dollar aid package for Ukraine. The president warned that if Russian President Vladimir Putin takes Ukraine, he, quote, won't stop there. The request comes hours before a Senate vote where Republicans have said that they will block that package. President Biden is expected to announce another $175 million in Ukraine aid. House Republicans, meanwhile, filed a resolution to censure Congressman Jamal Bowman for pulling a fire alarm in a congressional building while the House was assembled. Republicans allege that Bowman pulled the alarm on purpose to delay a vote on a government spending bill. The Democrat from New York says he set off the alarm by accident, thinking it would open a door. Bowman pleaded guilty to one count of falsely pulling that fire alarm back in October. And the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority voted today in favor of a congestion pricing plan. The plan would institute a $15 base fare for cars entering lower Manhattan, with small trucks paying $24 and large trucks paying $36. Congestion pricing would apply from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. on weekdays and 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. on weekends. Guys, back to you. I don't know. We will see how that goes. Kate, thank you very much. Thanks, Kelly. Coming up, Jamie Dimon warning lawmakers on Capitol Hill today about the risks of increased regulation and a bigger shift to unregulated markets as a result. Moody's hoping to bring more transparency to those spaces. The head of their newly launched private credit rating division joins us next. As we head to break, take a look at shares of Sentinel One on pace for their best day ever after a strong earnings report. Morningstar calling it an emerging challenger in the cybersecurity space. Shares of S are up 16.5%. Welcome back to The Exchange. Big bank CEOs are on Capitol Hill today for their annual state of banking testimony, and many warned of the effects of too much regulation. Here's J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon delivering that warning to lawmakers. Ironically, a proposal meant to mitigate risk will actually increase risk. This rule will result in an increased shift away from regulated markets to less regulated markets, which was not also studied, by the way. And this activity will be out of the sight of regulators unable to see the next crisis brewing. Well, for one, Moody's is hoping to shed some light on those more opaque markets, launching a new division researching and rating private credit lenders and products. Joining me now is Anna Arsov, Moody's Global Head of Private Credit and Global Co-Head of Financial Institutions. Anna, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, we've heard that private credit is now, like, bigger than high yield, and it's exploded. It's over, you tell me, with the numbers, a couple trillion in size. So, this is a recognition of the fact that it is, you know, a major player on the scene today, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's not as big as high yield, but it's on track to become so. You know, we're talking about the high yield bond market around three trillion, high leverage loans around four trillion. The estimate uh, that us in the market, it, you know, projects is that private credit today is around trillion and a half, mm. but growing potentially to 2.8 or 3 trillion in a couple of years from now. Wow. So basically surpassing the leveraged finance market. And, and if you look at kind of where lending has been, particularly in sponsored finance over the last two years, it's really been in private credit. One of the things, so when I sort of think about, okay, the role of Moody, you know, often it's to, it's to basically assign appropriateness yep. to financial products yep. so that institutions can pick and choose which one kind of fits their level of, of risk tolerance. In private credit, you know, it's so opaque. And one of the biggest criticisms is that it doesn't, it often seems to kind of lag what's going on in, in kind of the mark to market world. Just talk to me a little bit about what the concerns might be and how you're going to go about applying ratings to this space. Yeah, we're already rating in the space. I mean, we rate uh, business development companies, which I would say they are the most transparent part of the private credit market. We've been rating them for now more than a decade and probably accelerated rating coverage for the last four or five years because they've raised more capital. They've become bigger. Yes. They need to raise capital in the, in, the, in the public capital markets. They issue debt that we rate. So that's just one area. Um, and um, they actually are, have relative, we have relatively good visibility of kind of the quality of the loans that are in the BDC market. That's around $200, $250 billion of the trillion-plus market. And direct lending has been basically growing a lot, in particular over the last few years, and taking for sure market share from the leveraged finance market. And that's what investors want to know. What is the credit quality differential when you go into the broadly syndicated loan market versus, you know, for the private lenders? And the private lenders say, look, we have better terms. So what we are doing, and we're publishing researchers comparing, for example, where the broadly syndicated loan market credit terms, covenants are relative to the uh, private credit loans. And obviously, we want to make sure that as this industry is growing, we track defaults, recoveries in the same way that we've done for the leveraged finance market. So we've heard some warnings, some high profile warnings the last couple of weeks about there being a bubble in private credit and, you know, the risks are not transparent and, and things of that nature. Would you say that those are that those are those remarks are correct? Well, as I said, it's a trillion plus market. We really only have visibility of the 200 billion. So there is a truth to that. This is why we think we can have a role to play, particularly through our research, to point to where those risks are. And, you know, based on what, you know, Jamie Diamond had mentioned, that is true, that this is an opportunity for the private lenders to step in as the bank's going to be faced with higher capital and liquidity rules. And broadly speaking, we are uh, raising the question, you know, is there appropriate governance of risk in these private markets? And I think we can play a role in providing that transparency for investors. Yeah. So and you came, obviously, from rating the financial institutions. Yes. So you're very, very familiar with the likes of J.P. Morgan and those. I mean, are they being disintermediated, you think, by the growth in so much of this credit activity happening outside of those channels? For, for the J.P. Morgan, a large capital markets bank, this is really about the leveraged finance business. If you look at where sponsor finance has been and the formation of CLOs and just generally M&A in the sponsor market with this high rate environment, um, you know, basically the, the sponsors want a certainty of execution. And when you have sort of a rate hikes and you don't know where the rate uh, situation is going to end up, they chose to pay extra 150, 250 basis points over what a broadly syndicated loan agreement is for certainty of execution. And that's how this market has grown over the last two years, particularly in these larger sponsor deals, north of billion dollars. And this is really the overlap with the JP Morgans of this world. It's not about necessarily the middle, traditional middle market lending. Mm -hmm. Most of private credit has existed for a number of years, and we're talking about 50 to 150 million. EBITDA, you know, companies, 
JP, JP Morgan and the likes would typically not lend to this, and this will be highly levered uh, transactions. But really what's happening is that now in the larger multi-billion dollar deals, um, there are players who have raised significant amount of capital who really now has taken on that market over the last two years. And it's kind of... Uh intertwined with private equity, wouldn't you Correct. say? Correct. It's very symbiotic. Yeah. Uh, and because if you think about it, it's a $10 trillion asset under management for private equity. Private credit is just one of the financing solutions. As private equity is growing and there is trillion dollar of dry powder, that needs to be leveraged, as we know. And maybe leverage used to be six, seven times in the, when the rates were close mm-hmm. to zero. Now that's still four, four and a half times. So the banks will provide some of that leverage. CLO market will continue to provide, but private credit will increasingly become a, an important um, capital provider into sponsor finance. I'll sort of leave it with this most forward-looking question, but we've heard uh, analysts come out with big warnings about private credit and even private equity to some extent saying, look, a lot of these are smaller, highly leveraged companies that have to play, pay floating rate debt. Correct. For now, it's been a good deal for the issuers or the, yeah. you know, but that's going to come home to roost. And is that where your attention is going to be? Absolutely. Focused? I mean, we've been tracking interest coverage, which has been significantly, you know, deteriorating over the last uh, year in particular. I mean, think about something like the 2021 vintage that was underwritten with zero interest rates. And now we are at 5% base rate. So it's obviously interest coverage is suffering. And um, we're just waiting for to see where the default cycle ends up being. All right, Anna, thank you for joining me today to explain it. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank we'll you. be watching as well from What's happening in this space on Arsov from Moody's. Coming up, it's no longer just bachelorettes and bluegrass in Nashville. Robert Frank is on location with more. Robert? Well, Kelly, Music City becoming millionaire cities. The number of millionaires in Nashville has nearly doubled since 2019. We're going to take you inside the most expensive home in the Nashville area. It's got its own secret game room and an observatory. And we'll tell you how much it costs coming up after the break. Welcome back. Nashville may not be the first city that comes to mind when you think luxury, but that market has grown by leaps and bounds in Tennessee's capital, especially post-pandemic. Robert Frank is there with all the details. Robert? Well, Kelly, the wealth boom that's happening in Nashville has just transformed the economy. If you look at the number of millionaires, their population has nearly doubled just since the pandemic, now to over 116,000 millionaires in a population of about 2,000 people. That's created demand for all kinds of luxury products. Ferrari and Lamborghini, they just opened dealerships here in the past year, and they are sold out of supercars right now in Nashville. LVMH, Keering, Richemont, all the big luxury brands opening stores here. But the biggest impact has been on high-end real estate. If you look at the number of homes sold for over a million dollars here in the Nashville area, that has more than tripled since 2019. The real estate market here has changed drastically. Uh, It's been mostly because of -of out-of-state buyers, out-of-state families that have settled here in Middle Tennessee. Now, this property, Kelly, it's called Twin Rivers Farm. It's 383 acres just outside Nashville. It's got man-made lakes and rivers, hiking trails, tennis courts, a pool house with a retractable glass roof so you can swim in there four seasons. It's got a 10,000-square-foot main house with five bedrooms, seven baths, a movie theater, and a secret panel, that's my favorite part, that leads to a secret game room and a wine vault. The price tag for all that luxury $65 million. If it's sold for anywhere near that price, that would be more than twice the all-time record for Nashville, Kelly. You know, Robert, obviously, you know, I have some friends from Nashville, and during the pandemic, talked to a few people 
uh, out here who were relocating there. And we had these a bunch of financial firms. I think, is it AB? One of the, There's some with big presences out in Nashville as well. So if anything, it was the kind of growth that made people who had lived there for a while wonder about the ongoing affordability, availability of real estate. I mean, the one you're highlighting is special, but I'm curious what the dynamic is for the rest of their real estate market and whether it's holding up or reversing it all. So the overall market, you're absolutely right about affordability. I mean, the prices for the median house here is now $450,000. It's about 40% higher than pre-pandemic. Prices have softened a little bit. You've started to see a little bit of a building and inventory in the broader market. But the high end right now for homes like this is being driven by out-of-state buyers who are paying all cash. So this house, for instance, very appealing to L.A. buyers. The people who've looked at it, who've made offers, who are interested in this house and others like it are mainly very wealthy people from California who are coming with all cash. So it's kind of a tale of two markets. The top really strong with out-of-state all-cash buyers. The rest of the market, prices coming down a little bit because a lot of people just can't afford it anymore. They're moving further outside of Nashville. Yeah. And there's a lot more discussion here about how to create more affordable housing. No, it's so, and they're sold out of, of luxury cars. It's amazing. Robert, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Robert Frank on site. Don't miss Cities of Success Nashville premiering tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific right here on CNBC. Still ahead, near-term options in Chewy imply a 16% move one way or the other on its earnings. There's 17% short interest now in GameStop. And Dollar General has missed on the bottom line in seven of the past 20 quarters. We'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade on all three of these names next. Welcome back. We'll get three very different reads on the consumer and on two Ryan Cohen names after the bell today. We're talking Chewy, GameStop, and Dollar General in today's earnings exchange. Here with our trades is Lee Munson. He's Portfolio Wealth Advisors President and CIO. Tip of the hat to you, Lee. Welcome. Let's start with Chewy. Those shares have lost nearly half their value this year. Piper Sandler is warning on softening demand for higher profit margin items and declining prices in pet food. Interesting. JP Morgan, meanwhile, is bullish on revenue from its auto ship subscribers. How would you, Lee, if you had to, if you want to, play this stock? Well, the first thing that I'd do is this is a trade. In terms of a longer-term investment, I have some problems. Number one is that management is kind of Pavlovianly made analysts only focus on the auto ship numbers. Is it going to be 70? Is it going to be 75%? They're talking about how much sales per customer. That's great, but that's not the real story. They have about 20 million active customers. They did last year and the year before. We're not growing new people. Why am I going to pay 150 PE or whatever? Oh, and the, you know, next year it might be, you know, 50 or 30. We don't know. Unless this thing can double the amount of people out there, I'm not that interested in. So I think that when you talk about where the option interest is and they're making a big move, this is all about you know what's happening right now. I think my problem with Chewy, it's kind of like a chain store that can't open any more branches. And when you look at the last couple of years, hmm. sure, revenues are up 30%, but let's be honest, pet food inflation is up 30%. I don't see the growth. I think it's just a trading stock. Nothing wrong with that. My dog loves it, so I have to say that. You think the pet trade is whimpering out. I get it. I see what's happening there. We'll move along to GameStop then, which is down nearly 20% this year, but coming off a retail-driven rally at the end of November. Obviously, it's been levitating. Wedbush watching the shift from physical to digital download games and softening holiday demand for other hardware like the Nintendo Switch. Uh, retail investor activity, of course, always a driver of the share price. What do you, what do, you do with this one, Lee? 
I'm going to try to be mature about this meme stock. Let's look at the last five years. Our compounded annual growth rate is negative 7%. Our cost of revenues is going up, not down. So they have got to pay more and more to make a buck. When you look at the only thing that grows about GameStop over the last couple of years is the collectibles line, meaning that the place where they really do well is selling more Pokemon cards and what are called Funko Pops, which are these little plastic doll things. But when you look at the ads and you look at their website, it's not about consoles, it's not about Fortnite, it's not about Call of Duty, it's about little plastic figurines and trading cards. Everything else is going down with this ship. They even like, did they even get a COVID bump with all that stimulus money? No, they couldn't even do that right. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of faith in this company. I'm not saying you should go short it because again, it's a meme stock. What I would do is I would walk backwards and walk far, far away and find another company to buy. All right, you're doing the moonwalk away from that one. Maybe to Dollar General, which is down more than 40% this year, but off of the October lows when CEO Jeff Owen was ousted after less than a year. KeyBank is watching for consumer trade down to the discounters and big competition from Dollar Tree and Walmart. They're bullish on the return of Ted Vassos as CEO, though, hoping he can address the sales decline and store safety concerns. Is this a chance to pick up the shares? I think so. You know, I love this thing at 100 right before uh, Vassos came back. You know, it's run up a little bit. I, let me just tell you, I, I kind of regret I didn't just jump in a little bit earlier, a few months ago. But here's the thing. They'll get the inventories down. I love the pop shelf stores. I got about, I think, three or 400 of those out. They look cool. It's more about little goods and little things to buy. I think people don't understand this company. It's a tough business. However, the PE is so cheap compared to its other competitors. Also, they've got the new you know, CEO back that's making people feel comfortable. But this is not something that has a moat. This is like the only game in town. I live in New Mexico. We have a lot of rural areas where a lot of people don't have gas money to drive 25 miles to a Walmart. They got three bucks in their pocket and they need some things like toothpaste and necessities. And Dollar General provides that. So I think that people don't understand that as long as they can make the stores a little safer, that's an issue. All right, we got to go. Any parting thought on Disney? You warming up to it at all? Not at all. Not warming up. Kids didn't want to watch Indiana Jones. They said they don't like old white guys in movies. My what? daughter doesn't care about princesses. It's Hunger Games and Taylor Swift. Same problems. I love Disney. Go to the parks, stream it, find another stock to buy. All right. And tell us when you're turning into a buyer. We want to note that down on that one. Lee, thank you very much. Lee Munson, Portfolio Wealth Advisors. Let's get one more check on the latest short from Muddy Waters. Carson Block telling us they see, quote, serious deterioration in the loan book at Blackstone's mortgage uh, rate, calling the, which called the report misleading and says liquidity is still at record levels and they are continuing to reduce leverage. BXMT shares are down 6%. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.